Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, what do we know about the suspect involved in the London mass killing? Leaders show up in London for a vigil. Is that hypocrisy? Should we cancel Canada Day? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ontario is reporting the lowest number of new COVID-19 cases since September. That's when we headed back to school. Remember school? Nah, me neither. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! There you have it. Uh, 1210 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website. Scott Thompson at 900 CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. Uh, lots to talk about today, including the ongoing situation in London. We will bring you up to date with that in uh, just a moment. Obviously, thousands uh, gathering in London last night for a vigil uh, for the family that was literally mowed down uh, by a 20-year-old. Uh, four members of the family killed. A young 9-year-old boy still in hospital without a family. It's just a tragic, tragic, tragic story. And uh, and it's affected everybody right the way across uh, not only the province but the country and uh, around the world. This has uh, gotten attention. Here is what the mayor of London had to say. I will be clear. This was a terrorist attack. This was an act of mass murder and a grotesque expression of hatred rooted in Islamophobia. The magnitude of what has happened to this precious family and to our Muslim community can make us question who we are as a city and even who we are as Londoners. We now live in a time and in a place where thousands of Muslims, our family members, our neighbors, friends and co-workers, perhaps the next time they go out for a walk and through no fault of their own may be looking over their shoulders. But I'd like to ask all of you my Muslim brothers and sisters, to look over your shoulders on this night, to look at all the support, the compassion, and the empathy that is shown tonight. All right, that is the Mayor of London speaking at the vigil last night. Let's bring in Sawyer Bogdan, reporter for Global News Radio, uh, London 980, and is with us now. Sawyer, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. It's uh, just an incredible uh, show of support in London last night. Uh, it truly was. We saw thousands of people uh, come out to show their support uh, with the London Muslim community. Uh, also, lots of leaders there, uh, lots of people uh, speaking out. Um, what, what is the feeling of, of all of those officials showing up in London yesterday? Uh, people we, uh, people we uh, spoke to at the vigil, I think, appreciated Having the leader, having um, the leaders of every federal party there, as well as every um, Ontario provincial party, show up and show their support. Um, so I think it meant a lot to them. But I also think, on the other hand, um, there's people now wanting to see um, action beyond just uh, the words of sorrow. Uh, that that was my next point, Sawyer. Uh, obviously, uh, since all of this happened, there's uh, been various things that have come forward. 
uh, the Prime Minister's view on the Quebec bill, uh, banning religious uh, symbols, uh, Aaron O'Toole uh, voting against uh, uh, a, a declaring Islamophobia uh, back in 2017. Is, is, there, is there hypocrisy here? Is there a feeling of that? Is, or or is, was everybody there just happy to see them? There was there was mixed reactions as various politicians went up on stage. Aaron O'Toole was booed. Um, some some other people were booed. So I I say it was mixed. I think on the one hand everybody um, wanted to be there, focused on the family um, and remembering them, giving thoughts and prayers, obviously to the their sole surviving son. Um, but on the other hand, I think. Um, having every politician have their say about what a horrible thing this is and then not really hearing any concrete action um i think definitely had a couple of uh had a couple of people um shouting expressing their opinions in the crowd uh what do we know do we know anything about the son's condition the nine-year-old that survived any more reports on how he is doing we know he's still in hospital, um, and uh, we have heard that yesterday um, he did learn that his entire family was dead. Oh, my. Um, oh, my. Um, a- any uh, report of his prognosis or when he will get out of hospital? We haven't received any details on that yet. Um, we just know that he is with um, an aunt and an uncle, I believe. My, what a terrible story. Um, w- w- do we know anything more about the suspect? Uh, obviously, police are staying pretty mum about this. We understand Facebook and social media has been scrubbed uh, by the providers, I guess. Uh, do we know anything more about the, the suspect arrested? Uh, I know some reporters with Global News spoke to the owner of a cab company um, last night who actually says his driver was in the mall parking lot when the suspect pulled up. Um, He said he saw his truck covered in blood and the suspect got out of the vehicle wearing um, some body armor and a helmet um, and uh, apparently expressed to the cab driver, the owner said that I just killed somebody and um, called the police and seemed to be, um, he described it that the, Suspects was laughing a bit about it and that he was smiling as uh, police took him away. Um, the owner of the cab company um, wasn't there at the time, but he said this was relayed to him by his employee who hasn't uh, been able to return to work uh, since the interaction. Uh, we're going to play a kip, uh, clip of that uh, report from the London taxi uh, at this point. Can you play the clip? He had a, a military helmet on him, on his head. He had a vest. Uh, seemed to be uh, armored the vest. When they take him out of the car, uh, the guy starts laughing, and then he asks my colleague to uh, video the arrest, whatever is happening there. Uh, My colleague doesn't do that. Uh, and we understand that uh, that the, the the suspect had just recently purchased this truck, and uh, it was equipped with a push bar and, and heavy reinforcement on the front end. Um, I don't personally know details uh, about the vehicle. And has there been any mention of the suspect's family at all? 
Um, we we have heard uh, some things. We know uh, again that he he was estranged from them. It doesn't seem like he had much contact with them over the last couple of years. Um, but at this time, they haven't really uh, spoken out about this incident. And uh, I understand that uh, he had worked at a, an egg farm, the suspect, and that uh, those there were quite shocked about his actions and he didn't seem to reveal any sort of this hatred. Uh, yeah, the um, I, I, the company that he worked for has come out releasing a statement um, about the tragedy and condemning it. Um, so I think everybody's really just trying to stand in support of the community right now. How does the community move forward? What happens next here? Um, I think there's a lot of uh, reflection that has to happen. Um, I think on the one hand, it's easy to say, I can't believe this happened in my community. Um, But on the other hand, I think we really have to start acknowledging Islamophobia and what we're seeing happen, not just in London, but um, across the country. Um, and other cities as well, as well, who have experienced this. So I think um, right now there's a lot of talk about wanting to support the community and how can we do that, um, but also what actions need to be taken um, so we can go beyond just expressing um, words and uh, feelings. Have police said at all whether they're going to uh, give us any more information on this, or is this pretty much mum until the to the actual trial? Police haven't given too many details at this time. Um, I know the suspect is due to be in court tomorrow, um, but at this point they're not sharing uh, too many details with us. And anything more on, uh, again, it appears as if uh, social media has been taken down and such, but is there any more information on whether he was involved with anybody else or any other group or whether this was just like a lone wolf attack? At this time, um, those are details that haven't been shared with us. Uh, it currently, we haven't heard of there being any other groups, so it currently does seem that he acted alone, um, but that might be information that gets revealed to us at a later date as uh, this gets investigated more. Uh, what is the mood like in London today? I think it's, I think it's um, really somber. I think everybody's still... Um, coming to terms with it happening only just a couple of days ago. Um, But I think there's a lot of of momentum building to want to stand up against Islamophobia here. Um, People are getting ready for um, a multi-faith march uh, to end hatred on Friday, which will go from the crash site to the Muslim mosque and last about two hours. Uh, So I think people really just want to stand up against this and show that um, although there is Islamophobia, the majority of us stand with you against it. Sawyer Bogdan has been with us, reporter for Global News Radio in London, 980 CFPL. And, of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Sawyer, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me.
We don't know an awful lot about the suspect at this time. Uh, social media and such has been taken down, and uh, police are mum on this uh, until a trial is uh, is held. Let's bring in Stephanie Carver. Uh, sorry, Carvin. Stephanie Carvin is associate professor of, in- of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Former national security analyst for CSIS and is with us now. Stephanie, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, well, it's been a kind of sad couple of weeks with all the news coming out, but uh, yeah. Boy, has it ever been. You know, it just seems we're rising out of a pandemic, and and here we go back down again. Uh, Stephanie, how come we're not hearing very much about this suspect at this time? Well, normally what would happen in these cases is that, you know, terrorism researchers or, you know, the media will immediately scour the Internet looking for some kind of indication of who this person was, what they did, what they believed, what they said. This person, as right now, has basically zero social media presence, which is odd. Um, it's really, so really do odd. we know that? Do we know that, Stephanie, that he had zero uh, social media presence or has it been scrubbed? Because we're hearing exactly. different com- conflicting reports yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. So that's what I mean. I was, I was implying, like, basically, this person was entirely offline, which seems not likely, or that this person, you know, if you know, it suggests, and I have no, you know, information to, to corroborate this, but to me, it would suggest that this is someone who made a plan and then scrubbed social media accounts. So the kinds of reporting on who this individual was and, and what they said and believed were, were gone. So um, one thing I will note is that we have seen um, the prime minister and others discuss this as an ideologically motivated uh, violent extremist attack or a terrorist attack, uh, which leads me to believe that either when this person was arrested, they may have here, he, he, he may have said something or uh, there may have been some kind of propaganda in the vehicle or alternatively, uh, they may be doing some kind of forensic social media searches to try and figure out, you know, were there signs of, of radicalization or p- particular ideological motivation? So uh, they're they're talking. Uh, everybody, as you said, is calling this a terrorist attack. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll see charges that way or not. What is needed for criteria for a terrorism charge? Would this fit the bill? So it, it would seem that way. The uh, our terrorism laws come from 2001 and, you know, after the 9-11 attacks, and they very much reflect that kind of style of attack. And our understanding of terrorism has evolved since then. But what, so, so what does the legislation say today? Well, basically, you have to have an act that is in whole or in part, that is important, it doesn't have to be entirely motivated, it can be partially motivated, by a religious, ideological, or, uh, yeah, religious, ideological, or political cause. And then it has to also be done for the purpose of intimidating the public, right? So you really kind of need those three things. And um, normally what happens is, uh, you know, if an, the, the idea of the legislation was that an individual or a group of individuals would be caught in um, planning a particular attack and you could lay charges on them for, you know, wanting to, you know, basically murder people. But on top of that, you could then augment the charges by putting a terrorism charge on them. So if you catch someone before they're actually caught, we call that, you know, it's a little blunt, to be honest, but we call that left of boom, um, because you've caught them before the actual attack takes place, if you think of a timeline. Alternatively, you have uh, what the situation we have here is called right of boom. There has been an attack. There are murder charges being laid. So the question then becomes, should we also lay these terrorism charges? Now, the reason why sometimes we don't see this is that the murder is like the most severe offense in our criminal code. This person has murdered four people. 
And, um, you know, the way it works in our criminal code is that these an individual can actually be sentenced to 25 years, which is the maximum sentence, but those sentences can actually be stacked. So this yeah. person is potentially facing 100 years in jail. So the question is, if that's the sentence, is there a need to actually augment that sentence? Um, with a terrorism charge. And from a practical perspective, the answer is no. But for communities who are impacted by this violence and are terrified, they want to see these charges brought as well. So they, they, they want that symbolic element. Uh, obviously, we know very little about this uh, person who, who did this. Um, but from what you know, what does the profile uh, suggest you know it's typical he was a loner or didn't talk to many people uh, people who worked with him on the egg farm said they could have never imagined that this is happening and that they would have never saw this coming he seemed like a devout christian uh what sort of profile would you paint with just the information you have um i, I would be very reluctant to do like a, like there isn't really a profile of a person i think what you know We've been trying to research this in, like, in, in large ways since 9-11. What causes someone to actually do something like this? And we've mm-hmm. looked at different groups, different ideologies. And the answer is there is no profile, right? It, like, like people, there's no age profile, no race profile, no religious profile. It, it really doesn't exist. People do these kinds of crimes um, for, for a whole host of reasons. So what we tend to look at are things like what we call push and pull factors, where there are kind of things that we're pushing this individual towards, uh, doing these kinds of actions, um, you know, did they experience a trauma in their life that caused them to question things? Um, did they have friends that were involved in these kinds of activities? Were there, you know, other factors? I mean, it's very controversial to say, you know, was there mental illness involved? Because the vast, vast, vast majority of people who have mental illnesses do not conduct terrorism offenses. So mm-hmm. that's not a good indicator either. So I think what's going to have to happen is you have to take something of a, an individual approach and then kind of try and understand what were their factors, a push, what were the push factors, what were the pull factors in, in doing this. But, yeah, I mean, this is the tricky thing. When I was in, involved in national security, I used to talk, go brief provincial, federal officials, and they would say to us, well, how do we profile these people? And I'm like, you really can't. Yeah. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. there's not one. And that's what makes it so chilling. So what national security agencies need to do is tell people, you know, if you see someone, you know, you know, what, what we do know is that in these kind of lone actor incidents, in over 50% of cases, an individual has either told someone about their intentions or has, you know, dropped enough hints that someone actually knows. So what we have to do is if you, you know, it's important for national security agencies to go to you know, populations and say, if you know someone who is saying something, tell us, you know, because, you know, that 50% threshold, which is probably an underestimate, you know, it suggests that we can hopefully stop these actions before they start. It's really our best bet is for, for people who are concerned to come forward. It's hard to do that if it's a loved one. I get that. But honestly, it's about trying to understand that, you know, if, if someone's kind of discussing about doing these attacks, maybe joking about it, those kinds of things come forward. Because if we can get these bystanders to indicate to people that these attacks may take place, it's our best opportunity to disrupt them. Um, we, we, we were talking about uh, the, the cabbie who, who called police and who this suspect approached uh, after these killings. Uh, dressed in body armor, had a helmet of some sort on, uh, just purchased a truck very recently, has big push bars on that 
on the front that you would see on on emergency vehicles and such that push cars off the highway, uh, and then ask the cabbie to take pics uh, of the arrest. Um, obviously, that sounds like somebody who is looking for attention as yeah. opposed to continuing on the truck like or in the truck like the person did in the van going down uh, the sidewalk in Toronto. Uh, are, are, we're lucky he did not continue. Yeah, we are very lucky that um, that's I mean, other than the fact that, you know, I, I I'm just so distressed at the the loss of this family and the yeah. community is facing. They just seem like such excellent people, just kind of the best yeah. people. But you're right. I mean, this is someone who was clearly, you know, if if, it, if what the cab driver is saying is true, that, you know, someone came up to him and said, hey, I want, you know, take pictures of this and make sure you film it and like hoping it's going to be on all over social media. Um one of the things you worry about is people call it copycat. I don't think copycat is the right, right word, but you do worry that, you know, these individuals do become sources of inspiration. We saw the Christchurch shooter that, you know, he had the name of a Canadian violent extremist um, that he was trying to emulate. So like these, these, you know, there's this kind of um, gamification. You're trying to egg each other on. You're trying to, um, you know, encourage other people to, to do these kinds of actions uh, by, you know, gaining some kind of notoriety. Uh, the, you know, the person at Christchurch live streamed his, his attack. So, yeah, that is something yeah. that we do worry about, that, you know, other people, for whatever reason, may take inspiration uh, and try to create what might be called a cascade effect that, you know, that other people, you know, one person does it, then another person does it. And it's copycat's the wrong word, but um, it's more that, you know, that other people see for whatever twisted reason they have uh, merit in what this person has done and either try to beat it or to, you know, keep that movement going. And and that is something we really do worry about, um, that that these these individuals serve as inspiration for others is that why we're hearing so little information from police i mean i'm thinking back of the case in strathroy strathroy with aaron driver and how he right. was um you know planning this attack and such and and we never heard anything more about it that was it yeah i mean it's always hard in the canadian system we don't really release we don't do a lot of reports on you know after action reports what did we know what could have been done um there, there was, uh, they actually do a better job of this in Quebec, uh, where there are coroner's reports which actually look at, you know, these things w- which have happened over time. And I wish we did because I think it would actually, um, provide a better understanding without glorifying in any way what actually happened. But yeah, I, I think also it's the fact that, um, you're not going to hear a lot about this because of the nature of our criminal justice system. There's the concerns that, you know, we are going to be bringing charges, whether it's terrorism, definitely murder. We know he's been charged with murder, but if it's terrorism charges as well, they're going to want to, um, ensure that there's not a lot of leak, uh, leaking about this person in order to make sure that if there is a criminal trial, that it will be fair. Um, and yeah, it's just different from what we do in the United States. I saw a lot of criticism online saying, well, why don't we have a mugshot of this person? Uh, Canadian authorities never release mugshots uh, as, as a policy, uh, for, for that reason that, you know, we take a fairly strict view of a defendant's rights, even if they are being accused of something just utterly horrific. How do you separate rights from education? Education is from information. I mean, I can certainly understand what you're saying about people who might be inspired by this or copycat, for lack of a better word. But, you know, uh, obviously there's the rest of us that need some sort of information just from an educational uh, perspective, not only to heal, but to understand what the problem is. So, again, I can understand the police's number one priority is getting a conviction, and that certainly, uh, certainly, 
certainly should be their priority. But on the other hand, uh, is there not some sort of better communication that is needed here, not to create copycats, but to uh, inform and educate the public of a problem instead of yeah. brushing it under the rug? I, I understand what you're saying. I think I think really it comes down to two things. The first thing is that I, I think it really is fundamental that the police do do a full, um, you know, kind of forensic search of this person's digital media profile, figure out, you know, how this happened. So I'd rather we kind of wait, um, even if it's painful for the community. I, I think it's important to just wait and 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 hopefully we get some kind of understanding of, of who this person was and um, uh, what did it. An example of this would be, you know, in back in 2019, which feels like a million years ago, there was an individual who was, uh, you know, charged with trying to stab a woman to death um, in, uh, I believe it was Sudbury, Ontario. And, you know, once they looked into who this individual was and what they were doing and saying, they realized that this was actually an ideologically motivated attack. The guy was an incel, an involuntary celibate. And he, that was the reason he'd carried out the attack. So the terrorism charges came later. So in this sense, you know, it does take a little bit of time to figure out all of the things that can motivate a person and what it is. I agree with you 100 percent. Our national security, our, our federal policing in particular, are way too opaque. Um, they don't say enough. We, we never hear about, you know, why these, you know, national security problems happen, what causes them, what their impacts are. And I think that's a real transparency issue. And you're right. Um, it, people have questions as to how this happened. And I think they deserve answers. Um, and particularly, I think it's important for the public to realize, you know, not to, you know, the failures. Were there, were there opportunities here to intervene with this person or anyone who engages in violent extremism to perhaps have gotten them um, into counseling or, you know, perhaps use a peace order, which is a bit... Um, a bit like a restraining order, uh, oh, sorry, peace bond, not a peace order, a peace bond, which is a bit like a restraining order to ensure that this person was not, in, you know, doing things like buying gi- giant pickup trucks with ramming devices on them. So I think um, you're right. Uh, I, I think the need for a proper investigation is there and is fundamental. But yeah, I would love to see our government be far more transparent, provide lessons learned, and try to help people understand this, because it's the only way that, you know, I already spoke about how it is, how important it is for people to speak up. When that's that's exactly what my he, point here right. is, Stephanie, yeah. is because, yeah. you know, we're listening to all of these political leaders uh, last night in London talk about how we have to be better, how we have to do more, how racism is alive and well and hate is in Canada. We have to do more. Well, how can we do more if we don't know what the heck to look for because everything's swept under the rug? And again, I'll use Aaron Driver as a perfect example. Because he's dead, it was over. It was wiped out. Uh, the fact that this person's still alive, how does that change this moving forward? Um, that's just it. So I think that this is, uh, yeah, with Aaron Driver, so, so there is the criminal charge element, which, you know, again, the criminal trial is really important. In the case of Aaron Driver, I agree. There should be far more publicly known about that case than is known. Um, and, you know, you do worry, like, are, are we not learning about these cases because it makes the government look bad? Um, I, I don't know. Um, and yeah, but it, this is just it. Like, I mean, we don't, I think because there's no easy answers, like you asked me, like what caused this person to, to do mm-hmm. this? There's, there's no easy answers. So sometimes, you know, generating these reports become uh, difficult, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it or shouldn't try. We have seen um, the uh, Canada Center for uh, Countering Violent Extremism, uh, which is a federal 
um, office uh, through Public Safety Canada. They have put out uh, in the last two years reports on how they do see the radicalization problem in Canada and what, you know, the, the fact that, you know, they, they look for push and pull factors rather than, say, a profile and, and why, and they try to spell that out. So there are good um there are some reports out there. I would also direct people to the most recent uh, CSIS public report, which has stated, you know, it provides their understanding of how these dynamics are changing. And they, they give their understanding of what ideologically motivated violent extremism, which appears to be what this case was, is. And so there's that kind of stuff. There's also research that's being published um, on the far right by uh, Anti-Hate Canada, which is a really valuable website, and, and other such resources. So there are some stuff, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm like you. I, I do think that, you know, the most important thing we can do is have transparency. We still don't have a full accounting as to what happened in 2014's Parliament Hill shooting. And that, to me, is hmm. just terrible. Um, it, and, and yeah, you know, it seems... It seems that everyone is in their own little silo trying to uh, attack this, but forgetting what every other silo is going through. It almost reminds me of the AstraZeneca debate between NACI and Health Canada. It's just poor. (laughs) And and really, at the end of it, Stephanie, it's just poor communication. That's all this is. And again, you know, people are uh, officials are saying we got to do more. We got to do more. Well, what the heck are we supposed to do when we have no idea what's going on? Are, are, Are we kept in the dark for political correctness we don't want to you know you're, you're worried about uh, copycat uh, scenarios or, or inspiring other people but on the other hand we're not giving people the information they need to be aware when they see such activity starting to form yeah it's frustrating i'm like you you know we often hear the government saying oh we're going to act we're going to do more but honestly yeah. we really haven't seen um a lot uh you know there was the quebec mosque shooting um you know years ago and um you know the government said we're going to do more uh we've seen other attacks there's an attack on a mosque um uh sorry yeah uh, last summer in toronto where the individual was inspired by um an ideology referred to it's, it's kind of satanic nazism believe it or not um which is the order of nine angles um we've seen you know there's still attacks by uh, the islamic state in uh, you know or inspired by the islamic state we saw a terrorism charge last march but, yeah, we don't um, know a lot about these cases. And once these charges are laid, basically nothing else is ever learned. And if the individual pleads guilty, we never really hear about the case again. I do believe that's unacceptable. Um, and I'm tired that, you know, the government keeps saying that, you know, yeah, we're going to do something. And then nothing ever really does seem to be done. I'm not saying there's easy answers here. Like, let's not confuse this. But, you know you're paid the big bucks you know, to, yeah. to kind of, to kind of uh, address this problem. I think the number one, I think one of the most important things they could do, which really wouldn't cost anything, would just be more transparency. It just seems we're catering to the extremes. We're playing to the extremes instead of everybody else that's in the center of the mainstream that is not like the extremes. And it just seems that's where the communication is coming from, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, from uh, a place of debate in the center. Uh, Stephanie Carbon with us, Associate Professor, International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, former National Security Analyst for CSIS. Stephanie, fascinating discussion. Thank you for the time be well hey thanks for having me on you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml a pickup truck comes and parks right behind his vehicle and the person 
young man with insulting language and a very aggressive approach from his truck. He doesn't come out, just uh, approaches uh, our colleague and uh, with a very uh, insulting, aggressive, rude manner, asks him to call police because he killed somebody. That is the boss of a taxi driver uh, from a London cab company, and uh, the taxi driver was in a, uh, a mall, a strip mall parking lot near where all of this happened, and was taking a bit of a break when all of a sudden uh, this pickup truck comes uh, wailing in, and uh, the encounter happens as uh, his boss just described. And that person yet to return to work, imagine how they're feeling, imagine how their life uh, could have been changed or could have been in danger uh, in any way. Uh, last night, obviously, a vigil, hel- a vigil held in London, Ontario, and thousands turned up to support the Muslim community there, uh, including every political lighter you can uh, shake a stick at. Uh, some were screaming hypocrisy, considering conservative and bloc M- MPs opposed a motion to content- uh, condemn Islamophobia back in 2017, and uh, even the Prime Minister in Quebec and Bill 21, which is the banning of religious symbols, when asked if he felt the Prime Minister felt that that contributed to hate. He said no. And then left it at that and said it was up to the provinces to uh, decide. So uh, how do we as a society move forward if our leaders uh, are not? Let's bring in Muhammad Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview Strategies and is with us now. Muhammad, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, pleasure to be here. I'm doing, I'm how- doing all right. What a bizarre uh, time we are going through as Canadians. How do political parties position themselves and not look uh, and not look like it's a hypocrisy? You know, it's it's really tough. Um, and as you noted, uh, in 2017, there was the uh, M103 motion to uh, condemn uh, Islamophobia, but all forms of of discrimination, which is often a forgotten piece in that motion, um, where you had political parties in, in the House of Commons pitted against each other on whether to acknowledge Islamophobia as something and, and being too nitpicky uh, on, the, on, on the definition and, and what that really means, even though the very members who are impacted by it are saying this is Islamophobia. We've been, we've been talking about it for a while. And political parties need to really take a hard look at themselves. Um, you know, who are they trying to, what are they trying to communicate to Canadians? What kind of society they want that they, that they live in, their children will be living, grandchildren. Um, because we're, we need to move away from this kind of idea of tolerance versus actual inclusion. Um, and what we saw repeatedly uh, of attacks against Muslims and other and other racial groups, indigenous Canadians, black Canadians and such, uh, you know, th- there's a bigger conversation that this needs to really take hold. And, and, and I really hope that political leaders uh, at all levels really take this seriously and, and not just, you know, uh, window dress it. What about Quebec and Bill 21? Um, it seems that every politician is pandering to Quebec because they want the large votes that are available now and not standing up uh, to this motion and saying, well, it's up to the provinces to decide their own fate. Is that good enough? No, it's not. Um, and that's where, you know, the, the, this is where politics and what's, what's the right thing to do clash. And, 
you know, you heard the prime minister speak on it and every other political federal leader has largely shied away from it. Um, and we saw this in the 2015 federal election as well, where uh, Thomas Mulcair later explained that when the NDP were pushed to acknowledge whether what their position was on the Nikob ban, and eventually Pegg saying, no, we oppose the Nikob ban, uh, he acknowledges that he thinks that that cost him the election there, yeah, where he saw yeah. a plummeting of, of NDP seats. So it, this, is, this is an issue that no one on the political spectrum is wanting to touch uh, and oppose Quebec on, even though municipalities across the country, premiers across the country have all pushed on Quebec to drop this. Um, and, you know, there is some truth that it is going to be on citizens of Quebec to, to really push their government in the right direction. Uh, but it requires uh, a conversation nationally that what needs to happen. But the conversation needs to also happen in Quebec because there is a tolerance for this. We have to acknowledge that. Um, what about transparency and communication when it comes to cases like this? We know nothing about the suspect involved here. I certainly understand there's a case that's being built here, and you can't compromise that in any way. But, you know, uh, I think Canadians are growing weary of politicians that are pointing at them and saying, we have to do more, you have to do more. Uh, racism is alive and well. Uh, we all know that um, hate is alive and well, and we have to do this to change when we really don't know anything about these cases. I mean, I'm thinking of the case of Aaron Driver way back when in Strathroy, who was planning a, a attack and blew himself up in the process, and we never heard anything more about it. We don't know anything about this suspect. We're all to- told to do our part, but we don't know anything about it. What do we need to bring? What do we have to do to bring these discussions to the forefront and, and perhaps ease out of the political correctness and just deal with the problem here? It, yeah, I mean, having been on, on the side when I worked for an, a member of parliament when that M103 was uh, being debated and seeing the, the patrol that comes out, I think what really needs to happen is when issues like this come up, and I'm glad to see that political leaders acknowledged it for what it was. It was um, an act of terror. It was Islamophobic. I'm glad to see that there was unanimous uh, messaging around that on the, on, by the federal leaders. Um, but, you know, it, it needs to happen not just at a public level of the conversation and all sides of the political spectrum, but it needs to happen individually. You know, when you're going and you're hearing it, you're seeing it, you, you need to hold yourself accountable as a political leader because you're a representative of a community, right? Whether at a, as a, an, a, a writing, a party, a country, a province, a city, um, the conversation can just end at, like, at a speech that's conveniently, oh, well, I'm going to talk about uh, Islamophobia only to a Muslim crowd. Well, I think you need to talk to this about to everyone. And you need to have them in private conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and most people know who are the people that pander to there or hold you know, views, whether privately or publicly. We need to challenge them. Um, and I remember uh, you know, the member of parliament I worked for, she, she pushed back. She pushed back a lot on those who were challenging her, saying, why are you supporting the M103 motion? And what she got was a ton of patrol from local members. And you have those who are on the fringes uh, uh, arguing that, you know, somehow we're, we're giving 
who bring Sharia law and such. That's nothing remotely true. And I think we need to also have those facts pushed to push back. It's not simply just rhetoric, but also facts that 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 establish what is right and where we need to go um, as a society. And Mohammed, you use. Mohammed, you use the term fringes. I mean, these, this is coming from the fringes. We've talked on this show a lot about the extremes who seem to be running uh, the narrative, who seem to be getting all of the attention. Where is the center in all of this? Why is there not more messaging directed towards the center? It seems even the leadership has become very similar to the United States. Either you're way over there or you're way over there. And there's no compromise. There's no discussion. There's no debate. There's no agree. There's no uh, agreement you know agreeing to disagree on things anymore it's the extremes that are getting the attention why is that and i think that's a symptom of just how partisanship has become in this country where you're you're getting these very extremes on on, on all kinds of issues especially on issues around equity race uh religious discrimination um and they become the norm and when i use the word fringe you know those fringe groups are the loudest and we don't challenge it enough we don't talk about it enough. Those groups constantly talk about it, right? They're, they're constantly saying, well, no, no, screw immigrants. They're ruining, taking our jobs. We're, uh, Sharia law is coming. You know, they're, that's all they're, they're going at. And the center, the, 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 the majority of where Canadians and, and politicians lie, you know, we'll do these one-offs. A one-off doesn't, doesn't really echo and amplify a message. You need to stick with it and talk about it, right? Um, and that's where a lot of the, uh, the amplification, the strength of the voice to um, push back against these fringe groups, these fringe voices, uh, you know, kind of gets diluted. If that doesn't exist, it, it, it becomes harder for people to rally around the right message. You know, I was really disappointed, and I'm a, I'm a fan of Jugmeet Singh's, although I don't necessarily agree with his politics, but I, I like him as a leader. But I've been, I was disappointed how he is constantly pointing to the extreme right. And it always seems that anybody that means that mentions the extreme right are usually on the extreme left. Anyone that mentions the extreme left is usually on the extreme right. Isn't this about extremism, period, whether it's on the right or the left? And with, when a leaders identify one or the other, aren't they just contributing to this divisiveness? Yeah, it needs to be um, solution-oriented. Uh, and you're right, there, there is a lot of this, uh, you're on that extreme. I'm on this extreme. Well, what about the middle? Like yeah. there is there is a bit of tolerance in the middle for some of these positions, right? Like, it, you know, as much as we like to say like it came from the extreme, well, there is there is still uh, granule amounts of people that lead up to that extreme that are okay with this or think it. You know what? This doesn't impact me. It impacts someone else. When it becomes this sort of this here or there or not me versus you kind of thing well then the easiest way for some of these politicians is simply go the extreme right the extreme left and that's not helping anyone and so the conversation and it goes back to my point where the conversation needs to happen the acknowledgement look we were on the wrong side before we're trying to be on the right side we recognize that we made a mistake like let's let's really hone in and, and make it uh, make the situation better because we're all Canadian at the end of the day, and we all want the best for ourselves, our neighbors, our families. Let's do better. And I think when we get too much in this finger pointing, that's where we lose out.
Muhammad Ali with a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies talking about the divisiveness that has made its way into Canadian politics, no matter how much we condemned it in the UN- when it was going on in the United States uh, as we search for the center again. Muhammad, thank you for the time uh, and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Let's talk about leadership performance. We've talked uh, about various uh, polling that's been done through this pandemic. It's been fascinating to see how our moods have changed. Dave Krasinski is with us, research director with Angus Reid, and is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing quite well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, I'm looking at your uh, at your research here, and I just find this absolutely incredible that uh, the June 2021 approval rating for our uh, premiers has the number one premier as Legault out of Quebec. I find that just absolutely incredible considering the hell that Quebec was in at the beginning of this. And even mm-hmm. still, I mean, the, the death rate in Quebec was up over 11,000. I think it's just over 8,000 here in Ontario with a province that's quite a bit bigger. Uh, are you surprised about the changes in Quebec and how he's gone from zero to hero? I, I was initially, you know, what's interesting about Francois Legault and his government is, is the, the the popularity and approval has really been maintained by by him himself and the government throughout this. You know, if you go back to when when the worst of this was happening in Quebec, as you mentioned, was just getting ravaged and was really disproportionately leading the country in cases and in deaths. Um, you know, in May of, of 2020, he, he had 77% approval. The lowest that it's it's actually dropped in this entire pandemic is 62% uh, last quarter, which I believe was, was second highest in the country still. So there, there's certainly, there's some sort of disconnect in Quebec in terms of who people blame for the crisis. You know, they're in you know in Alberta and Manitoba and, and in Ontario certainly people are looking directly at the government and saying you could have stopped this but in Quebec there's a little bit more of that um, you know there were other factors at play there there were decisions that they necessarily blame Francois Legault for and and even when he's been you know at the forefront of trying to open things up a little bit quicker than other other provinces that happened through last year and it certainly has happened this year with you know even the Montreal Canadiens getting their 2500 fans being the first kind of mm-hmm. sporting event to have a big crowd there's a sense that you know people appreciate that the aggression that they're seeing from him and they don't really seem to be blaming him for the worst things that happened um so you know Quebec in itself is always a little bit distinct um and we're certainly seeing that here. There's there's not that high level of blaming leadership and saying you could have stopped this that that uh, we do see in other provinces. So how could uh, Premier Legault not have stopped this, but Doug Ford could have stopped this? And again, I, I go back to the death rate. It's it's well over eleven thousand in Quebec and just over eight thousand in Ontario, and there's fifteen million people here. Uh, yeah, how come okay. Ontario is blaming the premier, but Quebec is not? I think there's certainly um, well. To begin with, you had a, a government in Quebec that was was pretty popular before, and and right. you know Doug Ford was was not exactly uh, a beloved figure for say you know sixty percent of the population, even when he was elected. So you start with a, a proportion that is really a, they're inclined to blame him if they get the opportunity, and we didn't see that immediately with Doug Ford. You know when you look at the handling of this. 
um, you know, people might recall like the new Doug Ford that we had uh, right. in in the the springtime of last year. He kind of put partisanship aside, and he was speaking directly, making forceful statements about what people had to do and their responsibility to keep people safe. And we had Doug Ford uh, among the highest rated uh, premiers in the country at last last uh, spring at this. Time. So, but it, but it seems. Yeah, and it seems what's happened here is as it's taken longer to vaccinate, then it seems that that has shifted, Dave. And it seemed like, what did he do wrong? I know many are saying he opened up too soon and then he closed and he made some bad decisions, but all of the premiers have done that at one time or another. And again, I point to Legault. So is it just that Doug Ford's easy pickings, he's low-hanging fruit, or, or where can you identify where he went wrong in all of this? Well, I think we can identify where it went wrong. And that was the, you know, the April rollout of restrictions, the very forceful statements, the restrictions that came in that people really pushed back on, you know, the, the right to stop people in the streets and, and ask them what they're doing and, and, you know, closing public parks and then, and then opening public parks. There was a real point of, of, kind of transfer in public opinion where he was still at 50%. You know, it was trending downward, but he still had 50% approval in March. But there is a perception that government restrictions, we saw this in March when we asked, we saw this in April, people actually wanted tighter restrictions. They were worried about a third wave and they blamed the government for that third wave to a large extent uh, that, that really happened in the preceding period between March when we had this 50% and now. And now there's a sense that the people really did shift to blaming the government. They were giving them credit for doing all that they could. And then there was a sense that, you know, the government hasn't made, you know, forceful decisions that they've stuck with. There's been a, a communication gap. And, you know, people started turning to... Do you think it's fair to... Officer. You saw David yeah. Williams step down. So everybody yeah. kind of faced it uh, in the, the, the government sphere over the last two to three months. This hasn't turned around or didn't turn around until we saw mass vaccinations come in in May. That's when things really turned the corner. How can provinces be blamed for that? How can provinces be blamed for a third wave, especially when all the provinces were dealing with it? Yeah, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. Even if you look at somewhere like, you know, where I am in B.C., you know, we, we knew a third wave was coming. We we went into a third wave. Restrictions came in. There's, you know, don't don't travel from community to community. There are things that came in in B.C., and the government hasn't borne the brunt of that. You know, we've got John Horgan basically at the same level, 63% yeah. approval. Whereas, you know, Doug Ford, whether it's, you know, it's a perception of his, his personality, the way that he communicates, and that, that kind of going back and forth a little bit over the spring, they're really, you know, people have shifted to, to saying, you know, he's he's not the guy for this. And, and we see that for for a number of the conservative leaders, uh, you know, Ford is right there with Pallister and Kenny and they're, yeah. they're three on their own. So there's something about the I think the perceived um, lack of, of consistency on the restriction file and on and on those types of issues where people did blame them for the third wave or uh, other premiers kind of escaped that and it was kind of seen as inevitable. Dave Korsinski with us, research director with the Angus Reid Institute on the Premier's performance. Uh, Quebec, believe it or not, uh, showing the best for Premier Legault. Dave, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No problem. You too. Here's today's daily commentary. We remember when the global pandemic started, many could not wait until life got back to normal. Now, not so much. 
We talked last week of a poll that suggested up to 80% of Canadians are not interested in going back to the old normal. There is another poll this week from Angus Reid for a flexible workspace provider that confirms the same thing. Most want some sort of work-life balance that a hybrid work model could provide. Obviously, that can mean different things to different industries. However, a common denominator was commuting. In the GTHA, that could take up to an hour or two off the typical day. Two-thirds of respondents say they want a commute of less than 30 minutes. A third said they want a commute of less than 15 minutes. Most will never see that reality as we can rarely pick where we work or live. So a hybrid model is likely the answer. 15 minutes is more like a snack break at the fridge nowadays than any commute in southern Ontario. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, To say it's been a tough year for Canadians is an understatement. Uh, Just dealing with a global pandemic and uh, waiting for vaccine to arrive to fight COVID-19. Now, of course, uh, the Kamloops Residential School. Uh, a story in the news as 215 bodies, remains of students found below that former site. Uh, obviously, what has happened in London over the weekend, the vigil last night, uh, uh, supporting the Muslim community as a, a 20-year-old suspect is in, uh, in jail waiting uh, for uh, to find his fate after uh, mowing down four family members, leaving one nine-year-old boy to survive without uh, his family. It's been an incredibly tough week uh, for this country. Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, CEO of Ellipsum Communications and Public Policy Analyst. Uh, her recent column in the National Post, The Push to Cancel Canada Day, misunderstands that our flawed nation is still worth celebrating. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. So, Tasha, we, there's a lot of stuff to cover here, and, and I want to sort of uh, dovetail with what our last guest was talking about and from Angus Reid. And uh, there was a, uh, a poll on the performance of premiers, and uh, obviously Ford and Kenny taking a kicking, and Legault, uh, the premier of Quebec, is in first with 66% approval rating. And we remember at the beginning of this pandemic, Quebec literally going through hell and the amount of death in uh, in long-term care and nursing homes. I think the, the death rates for Quebec is somewhere over 11,000 uh, with a province much smaller than Ontario, uh, who uh, I believe our deaths are, are just over 8,000 uh, throughout this pandemic. Yet it seems uh, the premier in Quebec is, is riding quite a wave, whereas we're seeing Doug Ford uh, uh, taking the hit. How, how do you explain that? How do you explain the provinces, although with the exception of Quebec and BC, uh, taking the hits for this? Um, it's interesting. I think that there are a few factors, um, one of which has been the fact that Legault, yes, while there were a lot of deaths in the early stages of the pandemic, um, subsequently, Quebec, ha- Quebec actually had tougher restrictions than a lot of the rest of the country, particularly Alberta and Ontario. Quebec, you couldn't um, go between regions, for example. If you did go between regions, you had to respect the region you were from. So if you're from Montreal and you went to your cottage in the Laurentians, which for part of the time you couldn't even do, um, when they did let you do it, you, ha- you couldn't go to a restaurant up there. Mm-hmm. You had to follow the restrictions of the place you came from. And people accepted that. Quebec had curfews as well. 
much more draconian than anywhere else in the country. Uh, to my knowledge, nobody else imposed curfews. And these restrictions, um, you know, people, people did protest. There were lots of anti-masking protests and that sort of thing in Quebec. That did happen. But by and large, people respected it, and Quebec's results have been better since then. Um, Quebec yeah. squashed its third wave faster. It got its vaccines in the arms faster. It basically, in the last few months, has really outperformed, I would say, particularly Ontario, where I'm standing right now, where really it was a case of, you know, open, not open, closed, not closed, backtracking on measures that would have been tougher, like restricting movement, allowing police to stop you, that those things, like, the government would bring them out and then r- rip them right back the minute anyone said boo. And so the sense was here that nobody really knew what they were doing. I think that's more the issue, is that the sense of of lack of competency, whereas in Quebec they did things, some of them were unpopular, they stuck to them, they did them, and then the results were good. So, you know, I'm not in Alberta. I've been reading about what happened with Jason Kenney there. There it seems to be Alberta took a much just, you know, less strict approach, and the results were that COVID cases soared dramatically. All my friends in Alberta were complaining about how they felt the government was just abandoning them. So I think that's part of part of it. I think it actually comes does come down to performance and also the willingness of the population to accept these kinds of restrictions when they were imposed. Uh, Quebec, obviously, I think one of the biggest things they did that set them on the right path was they were one of the first, they were the first province to uh, forego the second shot and just start administering as many of the, as the first yep. dose as they could. And that obviously uh, set them off on uh, on a uh, on a stream where they are today. Uh, that being said, as you mentioned, there were much stricter uh, regulations in Quebec, curfew, that sort of thing. Uh, there was, so, so you think it's, it's the flip flop of the Ford government? And, you know, particularly I can think about when they said, you know, the stuff about the police and whatever. And of course, that was, that was pulled back within a couple of days or so. But I understand that Horgan tried to do the same thing in British Columbia. Uh, so is it, is it just, um, again, I'm having a hard time putting my hands around that any premier was responsible for a third wave, uh, especially Ontario, when considering if you ask restaurants and businesses, they've been locked down forever. Yeah, but the problem in Ontario was that there was, um, I think it, it's really been the sense that the government has just been, while well, the lockdowns have continued in some form or another, um, Ontario was slow to shut down schools on, at the, in the last last phase of it. Ontario was was slow in February also to say, okay, let's put let's let's really slam the brakes on. There's been a sense that the government has just not. I mean, Doug Ford has not wanted to do things that would annoy his base outside of Toronto. And quite frankly, I mean, I. I uh, in Toronto, it's it's a very different mood than uh, in parts of Ontario, like North Kawartha, where I have a cottage, and I can tell you, people there, you see anti-lockdown protests because people there are saying, well, we have no cases here. Why are you imposing the same rules on us? And for a while, they, there were these zones. We had green zones, red zones, other zones, and then they locked everyone into the same zone. And I think that's where really they lost a lot of people. Um, but the reason they were hesitant to do that was because they thought they would lose a lot of people. And the Ford government did not want to anger a lot of its base, which did mm-hmm. not see the need for these rules, um, because they didn't feel that, that it was a Toronto thing. Toronto is not Ford country. So it was very much a rural-urban divide. And even within cabinet, I mean, there were lots of conversations, apparently, of just, you know, that there were ministers like, no, we can't impose stricter rules, because my, my riding or my area will not tolerate that. 
So I think it's, the sense was that a lot of decisions were political. And I think that's what got people mad, because people felt that decisions were not being based on science. They were not being based on, you know, protecting essential workers in Toronto, for example, Urban 905, where they were in the Amazon warehouse, or they were in uh, manufacturing or a food processing plant, where you had all these outbreaks that were happening. No one was giving them the ability to take time off without losing pay so that they wouldn't come and make people sick at their workplace, or that they, they had COVID, they would stay home. I mean, these are the things that the doctors were clamoring for, and the government did not do it. And it was for political reasons. And I can get into even more detail, but I won't. So I think that was this, that's part, one of the reasons it felt that it was a politicized pandemic as opposed to you made decisions based on science, and they could have been right, they could have been wrong, but you were guided by that as opposed to the desire to win the next election. How much of this is bad communication, not uh, the inability to get the message out for the premier? I think well, they were constant press conferences and getting messages out, but the messages were, like I said, they were flip-flopped. Yeah, They were back and yeah. forth. There was a sense that no one really understood what they were doing at times, and some of the messages made no sense. I mean, like I said, there's so many reasons here, but you're telling people that you can't, the playgrounds will be closed, for example, when it got warm here, and the only thing people wanted to do was get out of their house, get their kids out of their house, you know, and to say, well, we're going to shut all the playgrounds. I mean, it was just in golf courses and things, places where people could actually be safely or safer. Um, and and this this is why people just thought, well, this makes no sense. Why are you doing this? <laughs> so, again, it was it's a combination of politicization, incompetence, perceived incompetence. Um, it, it just, just, yeah, it's just a whole bad stew. And from where I'm sitting, it's unfortunate because – you know, a lot of the people are now, like I know so many people, they're getting their second shots. They're all over social media. Shot number mm-hmm. two, shot number two. The, the vaccines are rolling out now, um, you know, but the, that hasn't caught up with what's happened before in terms of public opinion. Uh, I see this differently than you because I don't see how any one province did it that much better or did something different to excel them uh, above the other provinces. Um, you know, I think Ontario is faced with a very, very diverse scenario. Uh, it's a province that has everything from incredibly high-density cities to to a rural area and such, a lot of people in that area. Uh, again, I, I, you know, I, I'll agree with you as far as the flip-flop on things, but many will point to that as as being as listening and being pragmatic and 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 listening to the to the constituents and such. Um, but is there one province that stands out for you that did it right? Well, we know the Atlantic provinces because they they had bubbles. They prevented people from coming, and they did it right for a very long time. They did have some resurgence um, recently. It wasn't you know it's not been perfect, but I think overall they're probably the most satisfied bunch. Um, and I think that the real the real trick was, and it was easier for them to do, is limit movement, yeah. limit people literally getting together with other people in ways that could spread it. They also don't have the same kind of, you know, they have an advantage. It's not like they are Toronto where they have huge, like lots of manufacturing plants and lots of, lots of places where people are congregating at work in closed environments where it's really hard to stop spread once it starts. And that's where... To your point, each province had a different challenge, and some managed the challenges that they had better. Like I said, I think Quebec did manage theirs better. Um, Ontario, faced with the challenges it had, did not rise to those challenges the way it should have and tailor its response. So I think that ultimately is why things went badly, but people will perceive, like Frank said, for a whole bunch of reasons, and the politics here, the politics was one of the reasons. Um, 
because the sense is that the average conservative voter who didn't live in, in downtown Toronto or even exurban, you know, Toronto, around Toronto, was, was would be resistant to accepting restrictions. So they didn't impose them where they should have, and they didn't right. give people the time off when they should. They didn't do the things they should have. So it's it's unfortunate. All right, let's talk about uh, the vigil last night in London. Of course, yeah. uh, on Sunday night, a family of four killed. A nine-year-old boy survives. Uh, the father, the mother, the grandmother, uh, daughter gone in this horrific, horrific uh, 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 murder, really. Um, your thoughts on all of the leaders showing up there last night, and is, is there hypocrisy there when you think of uh, for example, the Conservatives in the blocks opposed the motion to condemn Islamophobia back in 2017. Uh, the Prime Minister was asked just the other day about Bill 21 in Quebec, and if that contributes, uh, which is obviously in re- uh, regard to wearing uh, religious symbols, um, if that contributed to to hate in any way, and he just came right out and said no, and but, but you know wouldn't uh, wouldn't add any more to Quebec saying that it's up to the provinces to decide uh, what they do. Are is, is do we need leaders to stand up against this, or is vote ri- vote rich Quebec so valuable that you're just not going to see that? Well, I think in Quebec, I think definitely people have been tiptoeing around the bill. Um, I think there's no question that when you're preventing people from engaging in in certain professions and that kind of thing, you're going to support the views of extremists who think those people should be involved in any level of society, who just, you know, would exclude them completely. I don't think it, obviously, it would definitely have an impact. You can't say it doesn't. Um, In this particular case, uh, what I found the most interesting was a piece that was written by a former conservative candidate who said that London was the racist city that didn't think it was. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, it was a former conservative candidate who wrote about how he had gone door-to-door campaigning in the city and felt that people were more accepting of him than his previous uh, candidate who was, who was Muslim because he was white. And he, it, it, it you know, the sense of, I, I don't live in London, I don't know the atmosphere there, but the sense that this person, this individual, was emboldened by his environment, I mean, perhaps. Um, we don't know what the specific environment was. We don't know, uh, who, you know, who this this person is in in terms of their you know their life story or anything else. But the point is, um, hatred doesn't usually just grow in a vacuum. Maybe this person was radicalized online by white supremacist or anti-Muslim groups. Maybe he was radicalized in his community. We don't know, but it's important to know those things because if there is an issue in the community that is that is you know promoting this kind of worldview, then that's got to be addressed. Um, if it's an issue online, that's got to be addressed, but in a different way, obviously. So I think that, you know, I, I, I you know, Jagmeet Singh was saying how Canada is the racist and violent country. I would like to think we are not. I think there are racist and violent individuals in our country. There, unfortunately, are everywhere, but we have to do a better job of not letting it come to this and having this, this poor family and this poor boy left now family without a family. Um, that this, is, this happened to them. I mean, it, it is horrendous. Your column in the Post, uh, the push to cancel Canada Day, misunderstands that our flawed nation is still worth celebrating. You brought up the term extremism. We've talked about that a lot on this show lately. We look down to the U.S. and we see how polarizing their politics have become. And is not Canada falling into the same trap? Uh, where has the center gone? I mean, even with Jugmeet Singh and, and, and talking about uh, the situation in London, you know, he's referring to right-wing extremists, which, you know, I mean, every time I 
hear someone talk about alt-right, I'm thinking they're from the alt-left, and each one, when they say it, inflames the other. Where has the center gone, Tasha? Um, the center has uh, been frittered away a lot by the silo effect, which is amplified by social media um, and politics, which feeds off that for its own purposes and, and feeds into that. And I think a lot of the sense of, you know, I just listen to the people who agree with me. I think that is a big problem here. Um, and it's, it's very easy to just demonize someone or demonize the other side and say they are alt-right or they are alt-left. I think the center is really what you're referring to anyway, is a vast majority of people who just want to live their lives, who are not looking to be racist, who are not micro-aggressing other people, who are not engaging in these kinds of things. Um, but there is there are always going to be, like I said, there are always going to be people who hate. And the question is, you know, you don't have to ascribe that hatred to the broad majority of people who do not share it. I think that's dangerous because then that does polarize. It gets people upset. They're like, well, you know, you're pointing fingers at me. I, I didn't do this. I disagree with this. I think it's an awful thing. Don't just assume because of my color or the class I come from or whatever factor, whatever quality I have that I share in this view. Um, and I think that's what you're referring to in part is to say, well, anyone who's a conservative must be, you know, must be racist. Like that's the yeah. undertone. It's like, no, there, there are extremes on both ends. There are. The alt-right is a serious problem. I agree. Um, but to, to just, you know, blanketly assume that's what this is, we, we need to know more to, to make that, that, that judgment as to what happened here. Um, yeah, people are racist for all sorts of reasons. People hate for all sorts of reasons. So until we fully understand why this happened, I think, again, like you said, it's, it's inflaming, and the center then collapses because people feel that they need to have you know, they, they go to either end because they feel, well, if you're telling me that I'm something that I'm not, then I'm going to react against you. It's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Do political leaders realize or parties that their victory is in the center? Uh, it's like we forgot to agree to disagree. We can't debate anymore. It's either I'm right, you're wrong, or vice versa. Is there? And I remember having this conversation with O'Toole. It's like, you know, the conservatives have gone off to the right and let the, the liberals dictate their their uh, narrative, whether it's about abortion or what have you. Uh, the left, the liberals have gone so far left that they're now eating the lunch of the NDP. Does, any, does anybody realize the victories in the middle? Um, I, <laughs> I don't know. I think that... I think to your point, it's it's there's um, the way politics is done now too, um, in terms of targeting voters, seeking voters out. A lot of it is done by data collection, and it's you know slicing and dicing the electorate. This goes back several elections. Yeah. Um, if you remember, the conservatives were, were famously doing it with their you know their sort of model voters and who they would target vote their messages to. And because of that, you do get this tendency to play to a base or play to a group that you know will vote for you. Um, and then that means that the center, again, it's like it's the center falls away. But I, I do think that, I mean, I hope anyway, the next election will not be about extremes. I hope the next election, whenever it is, is about some of the things that keep us together. And that's probably what I wrote in the piece as well, is that, you know, this, this idea of canceling everything. The minute you disagree with it, let's cancel it. Let's cancel that yeah. person. Let's cancel Canada Day. Let's cancel an event, anything, because there's something I don't like about it or it offends me or it upsets me. That no, because there are often two sides to, to a coin, and you have to look at them. In Canada, for example... We have so much to be proud of in this country that we have stood against tyranny and against oppression and against racism and against all those things and look to those examples and then you'll find the center because you'll say, look, there's a balance. 
no one's perfect. We've done wrong things. But at the same time, we must build from the strengths we have. So I hope that the next election is about the positive things in our country as well as the problems we still need to fix. Tasha Carradin with us, CEO of Ellipsum Communications and Public Policy Analyst. The uh, column in the National Post, the push to cancel Canada Day, misunderstands that our flawed nation is still worth celebrating. Tasha, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.